Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Today we're going to be continuing our series going through the book of Romans, and we will be starting Romans chapter 4. Um, now, in order to understand Romans chapter 4, uh, we need to be reminded of the end of Romans chapter 3. If you read Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, you get some context where Paul says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will not justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. It's always important to remember that the chapter breaks are not original to the text of the Bible. So um, just read straight through the end of them into the next chapter um, to see if there's any continuation of context of what's being spoken of. Now, Paul then begins in chapter 4 to discuss how it is that the purpose of the law may be established by faith. The purpose of the law of Moses was not to justify man, to redeem or save him. Its purpose was to convince us of our sin. As we read, uh, and Paul talks a lot about this in Galatians, because the Galatians, the churches in the region of Galatia, um, started to believe that they had to go back to the law of Moses to be justified. And so he writes a lot there. Uh, but in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 through 26, we read, But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now Paul, in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, he begins to appeal to Abraham as the typical faithful Jew. Um, the, you know, they were called Hebrews, um, because of Abraham's name, Abraham, he was called Abraham the Hebrew, you know, it's, that's really where it comes from. So a Jew is somebody who's descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he appeals to Abraham, who was before the law of Moses to show how a man could be righteous without the law, right? So in Romans chapter four, verse one, we read, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh has found? And so Abraham is the father of all the Jews, and he was the first to be circumcised as outward evidence of his covenant relationship with God, right? So he continues on, verses 2 and 3. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul is quoting there from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 which shows that Abraham was not justified by works, by the law or circumcision, but by believing God's promise to him. The text itself says that, quote, it, that is his belief, was credited or imputed to him as righteousness. God counted Abraham as righteous because he believed God's promise to him. Okay, Romans chapter 4, verse 4 through 8, we read, now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, 
but what as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. And this is a quotation. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account, or to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So Paul explains that to those who work for their justification, that is, you're trying to earn favor with God, it would be given to them because they have earned it, right? If you were, literally, if you were earning something with God, you were trying to prove your righteousness to God, then it would be credited to you, you would be called righteous because you've earned it. I mean, it seems to go without saying, but it's important to remember. It would be due to them, right, if you could do that. But according to Paul, the one who does not work, that is, for their justification or for their salvation, his faith is credited as righteousness. It is the person who stops trying to work for or earn their standing before God who is credited or counted as righteous. They didn't earn it. He appeals, um, and where he's quoting from here is in Psalm 33, verses 1 through 2, where the same Hebrew verb is used and ties the meaning, that is what he's just said, right? Where between uh, Genesis 15 6 and uh, Psalm 33, 1 through 2, right? He's tying um, the meaning of that back to the situation with Abraham being credited as righteous. It's clear from the psalmist, where he quotes from Psalm 33, 1 through 2, that God's righteousness is given to those who have sinned, which by very definition means that they do not deserve it. A sinner has not earned righteousness, but can nevertheless receive it from God. Okay, this is the point that Paul's trying to get across. Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? You know, this blessing of righteousness which is given. For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So by extension, he's asking, would it be to those who were circumcised, that is Jews, or was it this gift of righteousness, was it offered to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles also? Ultimately, this is asking the question of whether Abraham was given the promise on the basis of law and circumcision or not, right? That's ultimately what he's asking. Is it just to the Jews who have the circumcision and the law, or is it to those who live outside of the circumcision and outside of the law, is what he's asking, which he had brought up in a sense of accountability to God for breaking God's commandments in chapters 2 and 3, right? Um, verse 10, How then was it credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So what Paul is saying is Abraham was credited or counted as righteous over 400 years before the law of Moses was ever given. 
How then can righteousness then come through the law only? It doesn't. If Abraham was credited as righteous without the law, then so are we. If we walk by the same kind of faith as Abraham, then we will be counted as righteous before God as well. In verse 13, he says, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Again, this is, this is self-explanatory. Abraham wasn't justified by law, but by faith. And um, he goes on in verses 14 and 15, he says, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. If, if people are justified by the law of Moses, then all the promises of God apart from it, like eternal life through Christ, have no, have no purpose. The law only condemns people. You couldn't perfectly keep it if you tried with all your might for a thousand lifetimes. That wasn't even its purpose. If we're not under the law, though, then we cannot be a violator of it. And he breaks down these ideas further on in Romans, so I won't go into those right now. He breaks down a lot of this in chapter 7, which is very, very um, misunderstood. But the point is, if you are not under the law, then you cannot be counted as a violator of it. And he literally says that. Um, so in verse 16, we read, For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Remember the promise of righteousness. Not only to those who are of the law, that is Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, I need to park here for a little bit, because this is a huge issue in the series that we're going through. Uh, Calvinism really is the ultimately the reason why we started reading through Romans, and we're leading up to especially doing a close-up and verse-by-verse going through Romans 9 through 11, but kind of wanted the context of all of Romans 9 through 11. And so it just ended up that we're reading through the entire book of Romans. But faith on our part, the faith that we exercise, is the sole condition of salvation. God's justification of believers, his gift of righteousness, his, them being counted as righteous, is on the basis of their faith. That is, our faith, believers. Calvinists believe, and I. whenever I say Calvinists believe, you need to understand that there's a lot of people who are Calvinists who may not understand this is what Calvinism teaches. There are a lot of people who call themselves Calvinists who don't understand Calvinism, and they have a kind of neo-Calvinism, and they think that, I mean, they're kind of more Baptistic, really, than they are actual Calvinists. And so they have a very Baptistic exterior to all that they say and do, the same language and everything, but they themselves don't understand the philosophy of their claims, as it were. And this is a big one. A lot of people don't understand that, and we're non-Calvinists especially, don't understand that a lot of Calvinists openly teach that faith is not the condition of salvation. John Calvin 
Um, well, Calvinists, of course, you have to think about it this way. Calvinists believe that salvation is unconditional, right? Unconditional. Now, there's a lot of mainstream kind of eternal security believing Christians who believe that salvation is unconditional, but they don't mean it the same way that Calvinists do. Calvinists really mean unconditional, like you had absolutely nothing. You didn't even have to respond, right? Calvin, that's how Calvinists believe it. Most mainstream believers who hold to the false teaching of eternal security, they believe that once you respond to the gospel and exercise faith in Christ and believe from that moment on, it's unconditional. That's kind of how they see it, right? And we're coming down to the discussion of free will versus, you know, no free will, or as Calvinists teach a non-free free will, you know, and you're getting into that issue. But John Calvin said that man is completely passive in the process of conversion, and that there can be no, quote, cause within men for their different reactions to the gospel, end quote. And so if man is completely passive in the process of conversion, and there can be no cause within men for their different reactions to the gospel, how do you explain the different reactions to the gospel? Right? Some people listen, some people don't, some people listen for a time and then stop listening. Some people believe for a time and for years and then stop believing and turn to become twofold more sons of hell. I mean, these are what the Gospels in Christ clearly says, right? So how do you explain the different things? Well, Calvinists place everything at the feet of of God himself, right? God did not do this or did this or that or caused you to do this or that. It's really just theistic determinism, right? And we've talked about this in the past on foreknowledge especially. But as it pertains to faith, to Calvinism, salvation just happens. God begraces you, whether you have ever thought about God or not. And some of them, like um, Hoeksema, uh, one scholar, they they get very theoretical about this, and so other Calvinists don't like that. But there's Hodge, um, Burkhauer, and some of these other guys. They are just very, very clear. Michael Horton. Um, and there's a spectrum of Calvinism. So you say Calvinists believe this, and you're always going to have that little tin, that little contingent group who disagrees with this slight little tiny point. Or sometimes they just don't like that you state it bluntly, and you are stating the negative. Well, they're like, well, no, God saves people, God loves people. And they don't state the other part. We're like, no, God hates some people, and God delights to see some people burn in hell. And so you have to, there's always a twisting of words, is really what I'm just trying to say. But to them, man cannot exercise faith. He can't. He will just necessarily believe if he's one of the elect. They teach that if man could believe on his own, then faith is meritorious, right? That it is a work that earns salvation, right? Because man did it, and God is seeing that as the condition of salvation, right? So if it's the condition of salvation, then man can't be the one who does it, right? This is their reasoning. They assume the conclusion and work backwards, really. And so they think that if a man could exercise faith, then he could merit his own salvation. And you see how they reason there. They start with a conclusion and then work their way backwards well, and pretty much butcher the scriptures every way they can, really. Um, so they believe that if man is the one exercising faith and that salvation is conditional, then they're saying that man can do something good, that is, exercise faith, um, and they conflict good with, you know, meritorious 
And they say, well, then you're saying that man can save himself. And you see where this idea comes from. When you hear it all the time, most people don't understand the reasoning behind it or the philosophy behind it. Um, but the, or at the very least, then, he would be capable of a truly righteous act apart from God. That's false. That's complete misrepresentation of the issue. It's complete misrepresentation. It's borderline lying, really. Firstly, all faith is preceded by God drawing mankind to himself. Uh, John 6, 44, Calvinists want to quote it all the time. Hey, I have no problem. Let's quote it, but let's keep it in context and not make it say something it doesn't say. Uh, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So nobody can come to God unless God draws him first. Amen. I don't disagree with that. Calvinists, though, assume irresistible grace, and so that nobody can say no. So they say that God only draws those who will respond. I'm sorry, that's false. That's absolutely false. That is no basis in Scripture. Um, it's true that God must draw by His Spirit any who would be saved. We don't just arbitrarily or of our own thinking or will just decide to go to God. He first drew us. Now, who does He draw, though? Right? Does He draw only the elect and unconditionally um, you know, chosen few? Or does He draw all men. Well, just a couple chapters later, Christ said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Same Greek word and everything. Same writer, same speaker. If God is drawing all men to himself, because Christ said, if I am lifted up from the referencing his crucifixion, he said, I will draw all men to myself. He was lifted up, therefore he is drawing all men to himself. And so if God is drawing all men to himself, then all men have the capability through his provision to come to him. Calvinism has no basis to say that God only draws some. If God, uh, Secondly, the scriptures clearly say that salvation is conditioned on faith. God's grace is given to mankind on the basis of faith, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And some Calvinists will say, well, no, and that not of yourselves. See, therefore, they'll say that the, your faith is, that's what is the antecedent there of that. They'll, say, they'll interpret it saying that faith is the gift that is given to you. No, 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 the Greek does not support that at all, because the it's in the feminine, I believe, if I remember off the top of my head, trying to remember, because I don't have that in my notes. The Greek does not support that at all, and even some Calvinists, like um, William Mounts, will tell you that's not what the, it says. It is referring to the whole preceding clause, the whole idea that you can be saved by grace through faith. The whole process of salvation is from God. That is the gift. The whole means of you not having to earn your salvation at all, that is the gift of God. God didn't have to do that. He doesn't have to do that. And so there's no basis for people saying, well, faith is the gift of God, in that sense of how they mean it's salvation faith. And so that's another aspect that they get horribly wrong. Um, but faith is the condition through which grace is given to us. It specifically says, you have been, you, for by grace you have been saved through faith. God draws man and enables him to see clearly, to know his sin and be able to respond, and then man responds or does not respond in faith. 
God then justifies the man who responds in faith in response to the man responding to him. I mean, it's pretty clear. God draws, man responds positively, man, God saves the man. But faith and grace are not opposed to one another, because if you think like a Calvinist on this point, you have to think that faith and grace are opposed to one another. They won't word it that way, but that's what you are forced to think, right? Because they have the whole concept, they call themselves the doctrines of grace. Well, it's a very tiny definition of grace. It's a very limited view of grace. It's a terrible, terrible view of grace. It makes God a monster. And if you hear from Calvin, ex-Calvinists, you hear them talk about how they, they look back on it and they had this tiny, narrow, dim view of God's omniscience, his omnipotence, his grace, his love. And they really do. They just don't see it. They think they're the they're upholding, you know, evangelicalism. They think they are upholding orthodoxy. For them, and I was even listening on uh, Soteriology 101 with uh, Leighton Flowers, who I disagree with on a number of things because he's still a Baptist. But nevertheless, I appreciate the work he's doing to try and help people understand what's going on with Calvinism. And you heard an ex-Calvinist in them say on there, very clearly, they consider you to be converted when you became a Calvinist. And it might have been a tongue-in-cheek way of saying it, but that's the way it is. I mean, you talk to people who hold to eternal security. I know because I used to hold to eternal security years ago, and you didn't really think people who didn't hold to eternal security were Christians. Even if you said you did, you really didn't act like they were. You didn't act like they were equals with you or anything. You thought that they were these poor, narrow-minded, you know, ignorant people who just didn't get the Scriptures. But faith and grace are not opposed to one another, both both faith and grace are contrasted with works. In Romans eleven six, we read, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So Paul says there, not of works, but of grace. In Romans chapter 4, verse 3 through 5, what we just read, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So in this, Paul says, not of works, but of faith. So it says, not of works, but of grace, Romans eleven six. Not of works, but of faith, Romans chapter 4, verse 3 through 5. They're both set in opposition to works, in the sense of working and earning salvation. And then where we, I had to stop on this one in Romans 4.16, because it makes it so very clear. He says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. It says, So by faith, so that by grace. That means God's grace is given on the basis of faith. And it is by faith so that God can, you know, it can be the means of salvation can be in agreement with God giving us grace. And then, of course, we just uh, quoted a minute ago in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It says by grace through faith. And so, um, and this, uh, I like, this is a point that Robert Schenck brought out in his book, Elect in the Son. It's really clear. It's that the Bible teaches not of works, but of grace. Not of works, but of faith. By faith, so that by grace, by grace through faith. It's pretty clear. But Calvinists, because of their philosophy, argue 
that if faith was the condition of salvation, then it nullifies grace. Of course, grace as they define it, right? This is the argument um, that we all hear that tries to say that because salvation is by grace, then it can't be conditional, right? You know, people say, well, we're saved by grace, so salvation, of course, it isn't conditional. And th- this is the backdrop for that belief. Most people who say that, I've sat in a pastor's office and heard him say that, and then you point out the fact that, of course, it's conditional, otherwise everybody would be saved. Backing, and this is where, because salvation has to be conditional, if it was unconditional, then everyone would be saved. Now, you can tell that to a mainstream eternal security teacher, and they would be backed into a corner. But the corner that they back themselves into is, in order to hold to an unconditional salvation, you have to then say, well, then God didn't provide for all people. And you see where Calvinism, they started with conclusion and worked backwards to give reasons for that already preconceived, presupposed, a priori conclusion that salvation is unconditional. It really is. It's a demonic deception. It really is. And so, but Calvinists are assuming certain definitions not warranted by the scriptures. Now, John, John Calvin paradoxically said that the faith which is said to be the condition of one's salvation, i.e. election, that you know, that's how he refers to salvation in this context, election, right? He says that the faith which is said to be the condition of one's salvation comes from their election. So he says, uh, I believe this is work on election and predestination. And he says, quote, the faith by which the children of God enter into possession of their salvation is derived from election as its origin. How does that work? That's literally circular reasoning. In essence, according to Calvin, you believe because you've been elected. You have faith because you've already been saved, regenerated, or born again. But then how can that be the condition by which you do you do become elect? We see in their mind, it's not. To a consistent Calvinist, faith is not the condition of your salvation. You're saved not by grace through faith. You are saved by arbitrary, unconditional con- election. That's all that you're saved. It's arbitrary choosing. You are, not, you are saved by decree. You are not saved by grace through faith. And even in some Calvinist um, academic circles, they, dis- they kind of don't even really know how to place, you know, Christ's atonement. Sometimes they disagree amongst themselves. Not most of them, I don't disagree about that. But some of them have even put forth the idea, well, if God can just arbitrarily choose for some to be saved or not, then what does this have to do with Christ dying on the cross? This opens up a whole can of worms that the Bible doesn't even come anywhere close to stating. But this is why most Calvinists who know what they're talking about, they will tell you that you are born again in order to have faith. They don't believe that you have faith in order to be born again. They believe you are born again or regenerated to have faith. So, um, and also um, in another place, uh, John Calvin says it even clearer. He says, quote, but divine election is the origin and cause of our faith. Election is prior to to faith, but is learnt by faith. That's what Calvin said. And I was even reading a book that a Calvinist at work gave to me um, by Michael Horton. You know, it's that little green book that gets, you know, sold next to Roger Olson's book. I have no idea why Roger Olson um, 
wrote the forward to it. I, I'm just, it's ridiculous. Um, Roger Olson's an Arminian scholar, for those of you who don't um, know. And Michael Horton literally says it in, he says, you know, regeneration precedes faith. And John, you, MacArthur and Piper, all these guys. Well, then you're not saved by grace through faith. You're not. But Calvinists must believe this in order to keep themselves from any actual accountability to God. And that's what it is. And um, there's the, the lower level people, the laymen who do not understand that is what's going on. That is what's going on. They must not allow even an inch to be yielded to a true responsibility to God. Now, they'll use the word responsible, but they mean accountable. No, I mean responsible. You have a, a an ability to respond to God, and you either are or are not doing it and are accountable for responding or not responding to God. Salvation for you know for them must not be conditional. So they redefine faith to be a meritorious work. They say, well, I mean, I just I just I need to move on because I could rant about it all day long. Uh, Robert Pick really who is not a Calvinist, he's a, a, um, an uh, Arminian uh, scholar, he, he well summed up biblical faith. He says, quote, The nature of saving faith is such that it carries absolutely no merit for the person thus believing. The believer, therefore, gets no credit for faith. He is not rewarded for believing. Faith is nothing more or less than receiving a gift. It is therefore quite the opposite of earning, meriting, or deserving it. One may illustrate very simply, when I offer someone a gift, the receiving carries no connotation of credit. End quote. I want you to think about that. Those who say, well, if you, know, if you have to continue to believe in order to be saved, on your, like you have to consciously exercise faith, then aren't you keeping yourself? I'm sorry, that person does not understand biblical faith. They don't. They're repeating arguments that they heard from other people and not ones that they've actually studied from the scriptures or thought about themselves. And that's many pastors. I live in the Bible Belt, and that's most pastors. They don't even understand the reasoning behind the reasons that they give, and they really don't care to understand them. Because, just like that illustration that Robert Picker really just brought up, they'll say, well, salvation's a gift. Yes, it is, and a gift is given sometimes on condition. I give gifts to my children because it's their birthday or because they're my children. You know, I give gifts on Christmas because it's Christmas. You give gifts for reasons on conditions all the time. If you don't understand that, you probably don't have children. I gave gifts to my wife. Why? Because she's my wife. That is the reason. That is the condition. I can set a condition however much I want to choose, right? And here's the thing uh, regarding um, what uh, Robert Pick really said. If I was to walk up to a homeless person and I gave them a set of new boots, right? Let's say I saw that they didn't have any good shoes and I was concerned about them, so I got them a pair of boots. Would that person, because they received these boots that I paid for, if they received them from me and said, thank you so much for purchasing this for me, and they turned around and started saying, look what I have earned. No, nobody thinks of it that way. In fact, you would be offended if somebody went around saying that. But that's, the, that's kind of how people try to portray it when they hold to eternal security or Calvinism. 
Whenever you offer someone a gift, their receiving it carries no connotation of credit. But a Calvinist must say that it does. For the Calvinist, though, faith merely becomes symbolic. They are not receiving anything on the basis of faith in Christ, but on the basis of an arbitrary decree of God. Many Calvinist preachers openly teach that faith is nothing more than an evidence of salvation instead of the condition that God requires to grant salvation. John Piper said it, and I, I enjoy listening to John Piper. He's just a, a terrible exegetical teacher. He is. He twists Scripture to fit his, you know, already preconceived theology. He said, quote, We can say first that regeneration is the cause of faith. Having been born of God results in our believing. Our believing is the immediate evidence of God's begetting. End quote. That's literally putting the car before the horse. Salvation before faith. No wonder Calvinism disillusions so many. Calvinists are excellent at wordplay. They are used to arguing philosophy and fallacies so that they can twist the scriptures to say what they don't mean. If that offends you, I am not going to apologize because that is exactly what Calvinists do. Um, Leighton Flowers, I mentioned him earlier. He has a, a podcast on called Soteriology 101. Again, I disagree with him because I have no idea how he can. Um, he still holds to eternal security. And he's a Southern Baptist. I have no idea how you can you know, take his stance against Calvinism that he does and still hold to that in any consistent way. But nevertheless, if you want an excellent podcast explaining all the ins and outs of Calvinism on a deep level, Leighton Flowers, Soteriology 101 podcast, excellent. But he's a Southern Baptist professor who used to be a Calvinist. And he described um, this issue, the issue regarding faith and regeneration this way. He says, quote, some Calvinists will argue that the order of regeneration and faith is a logical order, not a temporal one, meaning that the two happen simultaneously within time. They teach that at the moment a person is born again, he will come to faith. The moment he is regenerated, he also places his trust in Christ. It all happens in an instant of time. Yet logically, as we think about this transaction, we must put a causal order to it. Does the Bible indicate that a person must be regenerated so that he can believe? Or does the Bible teach that a person must believe in order to be regenerated? Do we need life in order to believe? Or do we need to believe in order to have life? That logical order is what is in dispute. And this is why Calvinists can be so convincing to those who are younger in the Lord. They are constantly changing the meaning of words, committing fallacies. You know, um, it's just sophistry is all that it is. It's just uh, an argument that seems to have force, but it really doesn't when upon examination. And they're forcing interpretations into the Scriptures. Um, so let's consider some passages of Scripture to see how the Scriptures describe the order of these things. John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. He says that they could come to him so that they may have life. Their coming would precede them having life. How about Colossians 2.12? 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Um, Leighton Flowers brought that up in a debate and completely threw the Calvinists, and they don't know how to answer it. And then that Calvinist went to another Calvinist podcast and still couldn't, they still couldn't come up with it. James White tried to, I mean, James White's just terrible. Don't ever listen to James White. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And they can't understand it. They just, it's like there's a mental block from actually understanding the scriptures in context, which is a reason why I believe it's a demonic deception. You know, seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. I believe Calvinism is one of those. Now, according to that, Colossians 2.12, were you raised up with him before faith? That is being given life, that raising up, you know, or in order to have faith? No, you were raised up with him through faith, is what Colossians 2.12 says. How about Galatians 2.16? Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Paul says, we have believed so that we may be justified. There are dozens of passages that could be given to show that faith is the condition of salvation and that it is man's part to fulfill. And I, I was in a pastor's office and, you know, very sincere, man. The only reason I sat down and have a conversation with him, somebody asked me to have a conversation with him. And I always, I always tell certain people, I was like, no. Don't expect a Baptist, and I'm sorry if I'm offending some people, do not expect a Baptist to have sincerity. I'm sorry. I, I am surprised if I ever meet somebody who is a Baptist who actually is sincere and just wants what the Word of God says. And if I'm offending somebody, it may be that I am jaded. Um, that may not be your experience. It is absolutely, entirely, my entire Christian experience. This pastor would look looked at me and pretty much said, and this may have actually been in a conversation I had via text with him before we had the meeting or afterwards, but it was that pastor I know. I can't remember which part of our conversation and exchange this, uh, this part was in now that I remember. But he said that the faith that was being exercised by the believer was Christ's faith. And a lot of times they will turn to a verse in Hebrews to say, well, he's the author and finisher of our faith. That is not what that passage means. That makes that passage absolutely ludicrous, especially in the context of the rest of Hebrews. And so you, so now you have Calvinists, and that's, I think that's a normal interpretation that Calvinists use. This pastor, who was Southern Baptist, didn't even know that he was preaching Calvinism. Because he says he's not a Calvinist, but because he went to a certain school, he was taught Calvinist interpretations of the Scriptures. And he doesn't even understand enough to know that's what's happening. And so then I brought up all these passages passages which said showed that it's our faith. You know, how many times in the Gospels did Christ, you know, say to somebody, Thy faith hath made thee whole. But whenever you back somebody into a corner, all they do is they pivot to a different discussion. But the Calvinist is driven to his interpretation because he assumes certain ideas. He assumes, and we'll just bullet point this, he assumes God controls every action in the universe, including your decisions and thoughts. 
Now, is God completely in control of all things? Yes, he is. Go to our, our uh, discussion on foreknowledge, but not in the way that Calvinism teaches. He assumes that God controls every action in the universe, including your decisions and thoughts, which makes God the author of evil. I don't care how much you want to try to argue against it. He assumes God predetermines all things in order to know all things. Again, go to work on this uh, lesson on foreknowledge. He assumes God has arbitrarily chosen men to salvation or damnation. Arbitrarily. He assumes man is so fallen that he can't respond positively to God at all, unless God regenerates him first, right? Therefore, given those things, no man can exercise faith in God unless God elects or chooses him first. There is absolutely no scriptural support that teaches Calvinism. None. Especially not the idea that faith is meritorious or that it is the result of election or regeneration. So, I had to camp on Romans 4, verse 16 for that reason. Because if you... Calvinism is like leaven, just because it's a false system. Any lie is like leaven in your doctrinal beliefs and your ideology. And wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. And so you have to understand faith is your part to do. You have to intentionally exercise faith in Christ. You wouldn't even be thinking about this issue unless God, the Spirit of God was drawing you, was working in you. Okay? You don't think about God apart from God having already drawn you by His Spirit. You don't. So if you're even worried about God, if you're even worried about this or that, God's dealing with you, that means the Spirit of God is drawing you, and you have reason to have confidence that if you wanted to be right with God, you can be. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.